Have you ever thought about how hard it would be to break into the White House? If you're like most people, you'd assume that it's pretty hard, right? I mean, it's probably one of the toughest places in the world to break into. But what if I told you that on November 24th, 2009, a reality TV star and her husband snuck into a White House state dinner for the Indian Prime Minister. That's right, Mikhail and Tariq Salahi showed up uninvited to a White House dinner for a foreign head of state. Mikhail at the time was being filmed for Real Housewives of DC. Not a show that I recommend you watch, by the way. I don't think her season ever came out because of this incident, because not only did they sneak in, they even made it as far as shaking hands with the president during the meet and greet time. And when you think about it, it's kind of crazy, isn't it? I mean, this incident completely shamed the White House and its security, as it should. What's funny, though, is the reason that they got in, even though their name wasn't on the list, was because the person who was working the line let them in because it was raining outside and there was a long line. They didn't want to hold up. If you want to pick an important place to break into, the White House is a pretty good option. Well, depending on how you look at it. And that's because of the honor and the prestige that comes with the White House, right? And that's exactly why an invitation is such a big deal. A deal big enough that people would want to fake being invited and sneak in. And tonight's parable, two of them actually, they're all about dinners and invitations as well. Not by the president, but by a king. And not for a dinner, but for the most important dinner of all time, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And that's why tonight the main point that I want you to see is that since God graciously invites us to his kingdom, we must accept that invitation through faith in Christ. Since God graciously invites us to his kingdom, we must accept that invitation through faith in Christ. And if we do, there are three things that will follow. So it, because if we accept God's invitation, we will, number one, realize how unworthy we are. Number two, live for the coming kingdom. And finally, if we accept God's invitation, we will recognize the king. But first, let's go to the text. It's Luke chapter 14. We'll be in verses 7 through 24. If you have your Bibles, that's Luke chapter 14, verses 7 through 24. Now, he told a parable to those who were invited, when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. Then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. 
He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field. I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this parable. I pray that as I preach it, you would convict us, encourage us, stir us up to good works towards one another. Pray and ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. So this week, we're looking at two very similar parables of Jesus. The first one is usually called the parable of the wedding feast. It begins by telling us something that Jesus notices. It says, now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor. But before we dive too deep into that, it's important to know that Jesus is basically at a Pharisee's Sabbath dinner party. Give a little bit more context, Pharisees were the very conservative Jewish religious leaders at the time. People that were often on the receiving end of Jesus's most severe rebukes. They were often proud, hypocritical, self-righteous. And we know that Jesus is at a Pharisee's Sabbath dinner party because back in chapter 14, verse 1, Luke says this, One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. So Jesus is at a dinner that a ruler of the Pharisees was throwing, which means that place was chock full of Pharisees. And it doesn't take too much liberty to assume that it's probably a little tense, probably a little awkward. And that's not for no reason, because Jesus was constantly challenging the Pharisees. We even see Jesus calling them a brood of vipers in Matthew chapter 3. And the text even tells us all eyes were on Jesus. So the vibes are not chill, okay? 
Anyway, Jesus notices that all the guests at this dinner all immediately go for the best seats. So Jesus' response is to tell a parable highlighting a biblical principle, saying, look, don't all go for the best seat. Give yourself some room to be honored and recognized. Because what happens if you have to get bumped back a couple of places? Better to be bumped up than be bumped back. Take the humble approach. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. This wisdom is actually found all over the Proverbs, even some of the Psalms, that humility comes before honor, that the Lord opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And really, that's something that the Pharisees, who had studied the Old Testament extensively, should have been familiar with. But what the Pharisees' actions show us here is not just that their actions are unwise, but that these actions actually come from a foolishly proud heart. And if we take what happens here into the full context of both of these parables together, we understand that Jesus is saying something about the proud heart in the kingdom of God. Because twice in the next parable, Jesus highlights the invitation of the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. In verses 13 and 14, Jesus says, But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. Verse 21 of the second parable, After all the dinner guests have made their excuses, Jesus says, The master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. It's not a coincidence that this is repeated twice, right? Because one of the major themes in Luke's gospel is this idea that there's a great reversal coming. Maybe you're familiar with this, Luke chapter 13, verse 30. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. Luke 7, 28. I tell you, among, the, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Luke 9, 48, and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. This great reversal means that those who are proud will be humbled, and those who are humble will be raised up. So Jesus tells the Pharisees to take the lowest seat, not just for the practical aspects of not being embarrassed, but because this is the way of the kingdom of God. You can't enter the kingdom with a proud heart. You must enter as a child, humble and lowly, like Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Ultimately, the kingdom is for the spiritually weak, wounded, blind, and begging. Those who aren't self-righteous, but know that they need the righteousness of another. Until you realize 
your spiritual poverty, that you have nothing to offer God in and of yourself, that the good things you do, your righteousness is like filthy rags. Until you recognize that you do not deserve heaven and you cannot earn it on your own, you will never enter the kingdom. You must recognize your unworthiness. You must consider yourself a a spiritual beggar because that's what's true. Without Christ, you and I are spiritually impoverished, blind, lame, crippled. You need help. I need help. We need salvation. And this is the irony of the kingdom. Only those who recognize their unworthiness become worthy. And this is why it's important for you, if you're a believer, to strive for humility. Christians ought to be humble because the entrance into the kingdom is through humility. You don't continue in a different way than you came. Confessing and repenting of your sin, trusting only in the works of another, those aren't pride-inducing things. They're humility-inducing acts. But there's, there's freedom in that. The, the gospel frees you to not feel as if you have to puff yourself up in good works. It, it frees you to lay down all of your striving and boasting and pride. It frees you to lay it down and simply trust in Jesus. This is one of the reasons that you shouldn't be afraid to show your weakness and your lowliness, especially to those who aren't Christians. One great way to do this is to openly talk about your own repentance in front of friends and family who aren't trusting in Christ. Because when you do that, what you're doing is you're saying, yeah, sin is wrong, but it's not just other people's sin that's wrong. My own sin is wrong. It's the opposite of being a hypocrite. The world is longing for authenticity, so be honest. But don't just stop at confession, because when the world gets to see the power of God actually work in someone to create change, it's beautiful. But another thing a text like this means as we think about humility, it also means that we should never use the theological knowledge that we do have as a way to one-up somebody. Using our theology like a baseball bat to smash someone else. The Bible calls Christians to build up, not tear down. The kingdom isn't a proud kingdom, but a kingdom of those striving to be the least of these. But not only do I want to see that if we accept God's kingdom, we'll realize how unworthy we are, I also want to see that if we accept God's invitation, we will live for the coming kingdom. Verses 12 through 14, we have Jesus critiquing another action of the dinner guests he is among. And what's interesting here is Jesus moves from giving instructions on what to do when you're invited to a banquet to what to do when you are throwing a banquet. He tells the man who had invited him not to invite friends and family or rich neighbors, but like we saw earlier, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. But before we dive any deeper into that, I'm sure you're kind of wondering just exactly how all of this is supposed to work. Is Jesus actually saying that it's wrong to invite your friends and family over for dinner? 
Is it wrong to invite people over who could ever possibly invite you over? What's going on here? Well, I don't think Jesus is saying that you can never have friends and family over, and that every time we have to, uh, every time we have dinner, that it has to be an act of charity. I don't, I don't think Jesus is saying that. One of the reasons I don't think he's saying that is because there's plenty of times we see in the Bible where Jesus is just having dinner with his disciples. But he is challenging his culture, the, the status quo of his culture, especially to the Pharisees and the religious elite. Because you see, Jesus' culture at that time was a lot more focused on honor and shame than our culture is. In Jesus' day, meals had a large social importance. Who you invited is who you honored. And who you dined with is also who you honored. Not only that, but their culture valued and expected reciprocity. It's almost like an unwritten rule. If, If I invite you over you better invite me over at some point. But our culture doesn't really function like that. So sometimes things like this don't really make sense to us. If we invite someone over, usually we're not too worried about whether they're going to invite us over. We're just probably wanting them to try some food that we want to cook or just enjoy their company. But in this cultural context, when you combine the cultural values of honor and shame reciprocity and the importance of meals, Jesus' words make a lot more sense. Jesus is saying, don't just play the game of give and take. Give where there is no take. And the reason that Jesus roots this in is because since you cannot be paid back, you'll be repaid by God at the end of days. Giving to those who can't repay you is one way that you store treasure in heaven. And those who are in the kingdom should be more focused on building a kingdom treasure than building an earthly treasure. Jesus here is challenging what had become a cultural idol, showing that if you are part of the kingdom of God, God will have no competitors. You cannot serve two masters. So, but what, what does that mean for us? we can still invite our friends and family over for dinner. Well, it does set up a kingdom principle for us. We should be living for the coming kingdom more than we live for this present life and for this present world. But how would you do this in your culture? How would you do this in college? I think it would be wrong to skip even though this is buried in in a lot of cultural aspects, I think it would be wrong not to see how we as Christians in every stage of our life are called in general to show hospitality, especially to those who are in our culture who would be considered lowly, outcasts. It's a way of storing up treasure in heaven. When you only invite and hang out with and help people that you like, people who make you feel important or make you feel like you're having a good time, something's wrong. Don't don't just study with people who are smart enough to help you when you have a question, people who don't take up your time and drag you down. Study with those who it might be hard to study with. Extend an invite to that guy who, even though he might embarrass you in front of the girl you like, Still invite him. Associating with the lowly is a way we store up treasure in the coming kingdom 
rather than this world. This also has application for the ways that we volunteer our time and our resources in the ministries and churches that we serve in. We don't just serve because the ministry needs people to do stuff and we enjoy doing it. No, we we serve sacrificially, losing out on other opportunities and fun we could be having to build the kingdom. And as we invest our time and energy into building the kingdom, sacrificing time and money that nobody is going to pay, pay us back for, we are storing up treasure in heaven. If we really have faith in Jesus, if we really believe in a coming kingdom, we will live for the coming kingdom, even at the expense of our lives here and now. It says to the world, I belong to the kingdom. I value the kingdom's ethics and expansion more than I do anything I could gain in this life. If we accept God's invitation, we will live for the coming kingdom. But not only that, we will also recognize the king. If we accept God's invitation, we will recognize the king. Because in verse 15, where most of the parable actually begins to take place, we have Jesus telling his dinner guests a parable about a great banquet. And Jesus' telling of this parable is actually a response to one of the guests' comments. Did you catch that? You'll notice it there in verse 15. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. And then Jesus begins to tell this parable. And the gist of the parable is this. A a man is giving a great banquet. He invites many people. And on the day of the banquet, all the guests who presumably have said that they would come, that they make up all of these weird excuses, the, the worst excuses, honestly. This, the excuses in this parable are so bad, it's clear that it's Jesus trying to make the hearers laugh. The first guy has bought an entire field and has never seen it. You might think that's caught up in some sort of cultural thing happening back then. No, nobody, like you wouldn't buy something now without seeing it, and you wouldn't buy something back then without seeing it. The second guy has bought field animals that he has never seen. He has to go see it right now. The third guy is just recently married. I don't, none of these excuses make sense. And remember what I said earlier about the cultural significance of being invited to dine with someone, the, the honor that it bestows. While these kind of excuses are funny to the hearer of the parable, to us, they are incredibly dishonoring and disrespectful. So the master of the house, rightly angry, sends out the servant to invite the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And after that, with the room still left, the servant is sent to the highways and the hedges, almost like he's told, get anyone, compel them to come in. Now, no doubt there is a lot going on here. But mainly what I want you to see is that this parable is allegorical. What's happening is, is this. The rejectors in the parable represent either Israel as a whole or at least the Pharisees and Sadducees, the the religious elite, the very ones that Jesus is eating with, the very ones that assume that they'll be in the kingdom. I mean, why, why wouldn't they? They're the best of the best in Israel. 
God's very chosen people. This is why one of them says, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God, because he just assumes that he'll be there, that he's righteous enough, because he's in with the right people. But the irony of this whole situation is that Jesus is the king. It's his kingdom. And Jesus, in coming to earth, inaugurating the kingdom, declares that it has arrived in part and is coming in full. All those who trust and believe in him will be saved. But the Pharisees and the other religious leaders, along with much of Israel, are rejecting Jesus. They're opposing him at every turn and eventually conspiring to have him delivered up and killed. The irony is that this man says, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But the kingdom is among him. It's there. He's currently eating bread with the king, a king that he will more than likely reject. In the very end times meal that he's referring to, what Revelation calls the marriage supper of the lamb in Revelation 19.7 is reserved for the bride of Christ, all those who trust in Christ, the church, those humble enough to recognize their need for a savior and recognize the master of the house, King Jesus. Because ultimately, God has designed the kingdom such that those who are proud and haughty, those who are sure that they deserve it, they miss it entirely, making up lame excuses so they don't have to go not realizing what they are rejecting. But those who are humble and lowly, those who know they don't deserve it, are invited to come in. Because just like the master of the house in this parable, God will fill his house with true worshipers. Those who worship in spirit and in truth through faith in the sent Messiah. Those who they, they might deem unclean, unworthy, even eventually those who are Gentiles, who are not Jewish. They would end up being true worshipers of God, destined to reign and dine with him in his kingdom. Kind of reminds me of uh, the job that I had in seminary back in Louisville. I used to work at a men's clothing store called Brooks Brothers. Some of you may have heard this story before. Every now and then we'd have uh, heavy hitters come into the store, you know, important or famous people. One day, Mitch McConnell came into our store. Now, unless you pay close attention to uh, politics, living in Alabama, you might not know who Mitch McConnell is, and that's fine. The problem was, I wasn't living in Alabama at the time. I was living in Kentucky. And Mitch McConnell was and is the senior United States senator for the state of Kentucky. Not only was he our senator, but he was the Senate majority leader, meaning he led and represented the entire Republican Senate while they had the majority. It was a big deal. But of course, I had no idea who he was. To me, he was just a customer who had walked in the store. So I greeted him like a normal customer. Hello, sir, how are you? Is there anything I could help you with today? All of my coworkers were in shock. Of course, I was completely unaware. So there I was helping Mitch McConnell pick out 
khakis and dress shirts, not knowing who he was, just happy to be making a sale. But the real embarrassment came when I went to ring him up. When he was ready to check out, I did what I always did with every customer. I asked him for his last name to look him up in our system. What was your last name, sir? Okay, McConnell. Is that one C or two C's? Okay, your first name? My coworkers are cringing in the background. Okay, Mitch, here you are. My coworkers are glaring at me at this point. Of course, my good buddy Mitch was very gracious. Never even hinted that I should know who he was. After, one of, after he left, one of my coworkers came up to me and you know, was asking me, like, you know who that was that you were just helping, right? And I'm like, no, who was that? He's like, that was Mitch McConnell. I said, yeah, I know, that's, that's his name, that's what he told me. Eventually, he explained to me all about who Mitch McConnell was, which made me feel super informed about the world. But that time in my life where I was blissfully unaware of what was going on reminds me of this guy reclining at the table here in this story, eating with King Jesus, remarking about how blessed those who will eat bread in the kingdom of God are, completely oblivious to who he was eating with right then, that the kingdom was in his midst. And for a lot of us here, being believers, in one sense, we, we've already recognized King Jesus. In, in turning from sin and turning to Jesus in faith, we recognize him for who he truly is. We, we are in the kingdom. So how do we apply a parable like this? Well, we apply it because we still have to choose to submit to the king's ways daily while we await the full coming of the kingdom in all of its glory. One of the things that means is that even in this life, we should look to King Jesus for provision and for defense. What do I mean? Well, Jesus being our king, he, he provides for us. All that we need for life and godliness is provided by King Jesus. Knowing he's in control, even if something comes into our life that we don't expect, should provide you with contentment and trust. But another thing it means is for us to recognize Jesus as our king is to entrust our defense to him. Jesus is our great king and defender. And if Jesus is our defender, it means that he will defend us in battle against the evil one. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, cosmic powers. King Jesus is mighty in battle. Ultimately, this is one of the reasons that rejecting Christ is so tragic. Because rejection of this invitation is a serious offense. The parable highlights the sheer disrespect the master of the house feels when all of the excuses are made. He becomes angry. And while this parable is Jesus largely highlighting Israel and their religious elite's rejection of him, all who reject Christ eventually fall into the same category. Because this invitation comes at a high cost, immeasurable even. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, Son of God, Himself, God of very God, comes to earth and dies for sinners to be reconciled to God. The King spills His own blood. 
even though he is innocent for his enemies, for us, although we sinned and rebelled against God, the good king comes with grace and mercy and offers himself as a sacrifice, declaring and decreeing across the earth that all who would repent from their sinful lifestyle and turn to him in faith would be spared, saved, invited to dine with him at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Would you reject this offer? Because not only is this offensive, but it also means that it is a continued alliance with the kingdom of darkness ruled by Satan. The Bible promises that King Jesus will overcome and tear down Satan's kingdom. It's not a kingdom that you want to belong to on the final day. While it currently rules this earth, it is fated to be destroyed. The true king will rule and reign. Think about how Jesus ends this parable. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Once this life is over, there's no more chance to accept the king's invitation. You will never taste his banquet. You're cast out of the kingdom forever. What makes this even more sad is how great and blessed it actually will be to feast at the king's table at the end of days. Think about it. Jesus is the good, wise, and kind king who invites us to feast. What is a feast? What is a marriage supper? It's a warm, loving, joyous party. In the kingdom of God, we find true joy true peace, true contentment forever. We find true satisfaction in God and in the things he provides for us. That's what this feast points to. And we are invited in. You are invited in. Would you come? Father, thank you again for your word. I pray that we would long for your kingdom, that we would look to it with hope and expectation that we would live our lives now surrendered to King Jesus. Oh, how blessed it is to eat bread in the kingdom of heaven. So, Father, I pray that you would help us to live lives worthy of that calling, even this week, Father. Encourage us, remind us of these truths. We pray and we ask all of these things in Christ's name. Let's stand and sing about those things now.